0: Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. As awards season continues to pick up through the fall, make sure you're subscribed to the Big Picture Podcast with Sean Fennessy. He and Amanda Dobbins will cover everything you need to know about this fall's Oscar contenders, and Sean will be interviewing the industry's premier directors leading up to the awards. You can listen to his conversations with Bong Joon-ho, Noah Baumbach, Antonio Banderas, and more on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Amanda, Merry Christmas. Merry
1: Christmas. (laughs) I
0: love that it's Christmas on this podcast. Um, As such, we're going to discuss the film Last Christmas, which we saw last week. We did, together. Also, we'll dig into the Phoebe Waller-Bridge Vogue profile. A little crown anticipation coming on Sunday. Someone we wish well, it's recommendations. But first, our friends at Pearl Jam. Just kidding. Let's talk about Last Christmas. (laughs) Amanda, what letter grade would you give Last Christmas? Well, C. C. I was, was going to go D. Really? Yes. I think it's maybe the worst movie I've seen in a decade.
1: I don't think that's true. Just objectively speaking, knowing the movies that you seek out, including what was it called with the in and Fixing Up the N on Netflix? Fall, falling in Love or something. You have seen Someone Great? Yes. Someone, someone Great. Ten times worse than this movie. Disagree. Significantly better. Wow. It made sense. That movie makes sense. It has a clear narrative. This movie made sense to me, perhaps because I'm intimately familiar with the song Last Christmas by Wham.
0: Okay, so this is a spoiler conversation because the movie was spoiled ages ago. Yes. This is movies about Amelia Clark. Who works at a Christmas shop in England? By the way, I feel like the Christmas shop phenomenon we didn't really discuss, but the Christmas shop phenomenon is so fucking real in England. It's crazy. It's true. It's so intense. When I was in England in September last year, the Christmas shops had opened.
1: It's also real here in the United States in many holiday vacation and holiday towns. I know, but this is like
0: full on shops. Just it's like a pop
1: up shop, but for longer. Like, yeah, it's like but like it, it precedes There's- Halloween. Yes, some of them are year-round. Like I feel like the coastal towns in the summer, they have all of their beach stuff, sure. and then the rest of the year, it's just Christmas stuff. I can think of one in Cape May, New Jersey. I've never been to all one. Year round. There's one in Solvang here in California all year round. I they got some lovely wooden... Shoes like you oh. know Dutch wooden shoes, but a Christmas <laughs> ornament? I don't know what to tell you. Um, I went to the one
0: inside of Liberty London last September. Oh wow. It really was overwhelming. Okay. It was it, which is kind of similar to the one in the movie. And then she meets this character played by Henry Golding and she like falls for him, but he keeps disappearing and she tries to track him down. And there's like all these other asides, like her characters from Yugoslavia and the former Yugoslavia, yes. Yeah. Yes, but she was born there, essentially, and there's, like, this whole, like, like there's, like, 50 seconds of immigration discussion. It's, it's, like, three to four minutes. It keeps coming back. She also has, like, a weird relationship with her family where, like, her mom's trying to get in touch with her, but she won't respond. Like, just a lot of weird stuff going on. And then ultimately, as predicted by the Internet, Henry Golden's character is dead, and she, his heart, he gave it, gave it to her in a heart transplant. Yes, And that's that's kind of like the
1: big giveaway. But everyone guessed it except for you because you just didn't know about it, right? And (laughs) then you just like really rudely told me. Not everyone did not guess it because you and I were sitting in a theater full of people, many of whom had no idea this this was coming. And they were so angry. And I just have to say, that was really fun. When the women behind us just started yelling, like, what the hell? People were yelling and angry.
0: It was funny. I didn't find any part of seeing this movie enjoyable, though. Like, I thought it was just awful.
1: This is it just a true disappointment? I thought the three minutes when Amelia Clark finally sings Last Christmas uh-huh. by Wham. Were pretty delightful. She was
0: trying. I just think we just are not aligned on Amelia Clark. Okay. I just would buy no stock. None. No. That's a pass for me. You don't find her at all charming. I find her charming, but I don't think she picks good parts. Like I think she, obviously Daenerys Targaryen, role of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I don't see anything else working out. What would you have her pick instead? Movies that make sense, like Me Before You, also the adaptation was really bad. Like I would love the book, but like that didn't work. Like I think that she's not getting, like they don't like make the type of movie that she should be in anymore, right? And so there's just no,
1: there's just no hope. So let me just state it a little bit in Amelia Clark's defense. Sure, she didn't edit this movie. She did not direct or edit it. (laughs) And as you noted, there are a lot of strains in this movie that don't quite come together. Which to me suggests that the script was very different yeah. from what we saw. Must have been a just a complete hack job in the editing. And there were some heavy Brexit elements in this movie because as you noted, Amelia Clark is an immigrant and Emma Thompson, who wrote who has a she co-wrote this script, is playing her mother with a really exaggerated and questionable accent, but is is kind of doing the immigrant's experience in the modern UK. Sure. In this movie that's otherwise about Christmas and brain trauma. So not even—it's just like—it's just—it's not a Brexit plot, though. They just, like, mention right. it in the end. Right, but there is enough of it. It's probably, like, two or three scenes. Sure. That you have to think at, there's a lot on the cutting room floor. Definitely. That was not working. And it's—maybe it's good that it was on the cutting room floor. Anyway— But you have to imagine in the script, it's slightly different. Also, Amelia Clark. The whole you gave me my heart, and the very next day I gave it away. They they don't really explain a lot of her medical trauma. She's just kind of like a mess, right? But there are a few things where she's not really taking care of herself. You have to imagine that there was a slightly darker version of that that they cut because no one wants to watch someone like in recovery from heart surgery. Totally. This all I think explains why the movie's so bad because yeah. of all the weird editing. But you also have to you remember that Amelia Clark suffered like a, a brain aneurysm, brain aneurysm, and severe. Trauma. Trauma during season one, I believe, of Game of Thrones, and now has a charity dedicated to recovery from all of that and, and talks a lot about this. So you have to assume, a slightly more in the script, she's picking something that's interesting to her. There is also a tradition, as we have already noted on Ringer Dish this week, of British Christmas movies being slightly ridiculous and corny, but also beloved. And sometimes you don't know whether you're going to get <laughs> love actually, which. It makes no sense either, as we discovered, sure. or you're going to get Last Christmas, which makes no sense and also doesn't bring any joy. And I don't think <laughs> any of it is Amelia Clark's fault. I'm not saying she's anyone's to blame. I'm just saying I wouldn't buy any stock. I actually do have someone who I think is to blame. <laughs> okay. And it brings me no pleasure to say this. Henry Golding does not got it. In this movie, they both are just not stars, unfortunately. He's not a star. She's a star, and they have no chemistry. Other than Daenerys Cargarian when has she been good? I find her Instagram to be delightful. There is a video currently on Vanity Fair <laughs> where the four stars, of, well, the three stars, Michelle Yeoh, Amelia Clark, and Henry Golding, plus Paul Fagg, the director, are reviewing other Christmas movies, and. They watch Love Actually, and it's very clear that Amelia Clark is the only person who has ever seen Love Actually. That's hilarious. And is just carrying the video for three minutes while Henry Golding is far too close to the screen and is like, What's happening? <laughs> Which, to be fair, is a legitimate response to Love Actually, but he's basically like a wet towel. And she <laughs> is just like, This is a At Christmas, you tell the truth. She's trying. I like people who are selling stuff. I'm surprised you like her. She's so theatery. Well, she's a real theater kid. She
0: I guess so. Grew up acting. I I just I don't find her charming and I think she's a bad actress. I just never really cared for her.
1: I don't know what she's going to go do from here because last Christmas disaster me before you,
0: disaster. Me
1: before you, disaster. And obviously, the end of Game of Thrones, not her fault. No, but not at all. it is kind of like, what do you do after you play Daenerys Targaryen? Yeah, it's, it's a tough spot. To play.
0: She's playing a, like I said, role of a lifetime, completely iconic. But that's why I wouldn't buy any stock. I, she can't go up from here. That's,
1: it's just it's just down or static. I mean, that's probably true. She was very good in Solo, Another a bad oh, movie. Oh, I didn't see that. She was the best part of a bad movie. Well, not a good track record for her. It's true. I would not recommend that anyone pay money to see this movie. (laughs) Me neither. Even though I love Emma Thompson, and I want Emma Thompson to continue to get studio checks to write ridiculous movies with her husband, by the way. She has a story credit with her husband. That was another fun part during last Christmas when I spotted Greg Wise, known as Mr. Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility. And also Mountbatten in the first two seasons of The Crown. I mean, I'm going insane right now. I'm sorry. But when I spotted him in The Crown, I was like, that's Evan (laughs) Thomas' husband. And I told you, I thought that was a nice moment. You don't care. No. I just, okay. I just was
0: like resentful of this movie. I was like, I
1: wanted a, a great Christmas movie, and it wasn't good. What is your favorite Christmas movie? The Holiday. Listen to the rewatchable. It's coming up soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this made me want to rewatch Bridget Jones' Diary, which is not technically a Christmas movie, but starts and ends yeah, at book Christmas. Ended. Sure. Probably, I'll reread it first and then watch it. When do you think? I, I mean, I guess we're starting Christmas right now uh-huh. on November. It's November thirteenth when this For is sure. airing. Do you, you think this is a valid Christmas begins a month and a half early? I think it begins November 1st, the moment the Halloween's over. It's time for Christmas. I'm not really allowed to do that in my home. Why not? Because I think I go too hard with Christmas. Mm. And I really just, I push the Christmas music, we do the tree, we do all the ornaments, and so my husband has set it strict, it doesn't start <laughs> until Black Friday. But I really think I'm getting cheated this year. You are, it's it's so short. Because it's the latest that Thanksgiving can be, pretty much. Literally, it's the latest. Yeah, I so I don't feel great about this, so I guess I'm going to have to kick it up a notch? Just start it now. Don't, okay. Don't play by anyone's rules but your own. Thank you, I appreciate that. You're so welcome. That's really supportive, <laughs> even though you don't agree with me about Amelia Clark. It's okay. Disagreement's healthy. Here's one thing I'll say. We don't go to the movies together that often. That was a nice experience. Sure. It was really fun. We, <laughs> we had a drink to beforehand him <laughs> and some dip.
0: Love a good onion dip. Okay. I just I just feel like people want to root for Amelia Clark because they feel like she was like screwed over by the end of Game of Thrones. I mean, she literally was. Tough break. She didn't win. Yeah. I think it's okay. I don't know. I just feel like there's so many feelings about Game of Thrones that have come into the universe. And I also think that she— I don't have any of them. I think she should stop talking about Game of Thrones. Like, I feel like she needs some new talking points. Like, specifically the ending. It's different to tell stories, but I feel like she should
1: specifically stop talking about the ending. Number one, what else is she going to talk about? I know, that's that's part of the Amelia Clark problem. Where do we go from here? Number two, no one else will let her forget about it. As I said, I enjoy her Instagram. Every other Instagram photo is her meeting someone and the person bowing before Khaleesi. It's just everyone is such a nerd about it. Everyone, I know,
0: it's just it's just crazy. We'll never encounter something like Game of Thrones ever again. The international
1: grip. I I'm okay with that. As you said, everyone has a lot of feelings because it was like everyone lost a, sure. you know, a friend in their lives, and I'm I acknowledged the loss for a lot of people. It clearly <laughs> filled a major void. didn't really fill that for me. So I think we've just been in the grips of a mass psychosis, and now we're emerging from it. <laughs> and I can say, as having not been a part of the mass psychosis, I still think of Clark's pretty charming. I'm not working through any of my Khaleesi stuff right now.
0: Me neither. I've just never cared for her. Okay, I I never thought she was that good. I guess we didn't know who our wish her well well was going to be. Do (laughs) do you think she qualifies for wish her well? No, because I I don't want to be uninvolved. (laughs) No, I don't. It's just, it's just not like a like please stay arms length away. Okay, I find it to be like a fascinating case study. Okay, and like there's just sort of nowhere for her
1: career to go. It is a fascinating case study because we don't have a lot of examples of that generation of peak TV. Because even Mad Men is slightly different because Mad Men was never, like, the international sensation. The Game of Thrones people are pretty much the closest things we have to movie stars in the last decade. Yeah. And who knows what they'll do.
0: And, like, unlike Marvel, they were all made by the show, whereas the people who are like, were... Kind of famous, and then got more famous by being in a Marvel movie. But like, they were all introduced to us by way of this show. It's just, it's just interesting. Yeah, and I don't think any of them will have careers. Outlook not good. No, tough. It's similar to Friends, well, except for.
1: Jennifer Excuse Heston. me. Yeah. Can do you, I just, do can you want I to do, do you... a thirty second update on the morning show? I, I mean, I would love to. I've been—so Juliet's not in on The Morning Show, and that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. We each have different— Juliet likes the Kelly Clarkson talk show, and I like The Morning Show. And I, I actually never watch her talk show. I just watch her singing covers on YouTube. Well, on episode four of The Morning Show, you could watch her talk show because Kelly Clarkson has, like, an eight-minute cameo. I really thought that I had hyped the first— Three episodes of the morning show too much, sure. and I kind of I sat down for episode four, and I was like, you know what, I, like I it got away from me a little, or I was just making content. Sometimes you got to <laughs> create a character and play the character. Eight minutes into episode four, I just absolutely could not believe what was happening. I, it, this is a Reese episode. Oh, cool! Some inexplicable decisions on the part of that character development. Jennifer Aniston seems to be playing a brand new character. Billy Crudup's line readings right, are—it's the performance of a lifetime. <laughs> he just yells, woke Twitter at some point. I didn't oh even know God. it was happening. About, in reference to what? I, I'd love to tell you, in reference to—and I'm sorry, hit the 30 seconds if you don't want the spoilers— Within eight minutes of episode four, Reese Witherspoon is on live morning show television talking about how she got an abortion when she was 15, unscripted. So they go straight into the abortion debate. And obviously everyone at the morning show is really upset because they don't think that that is like morning show material. They don't want to be controversial. And that's deemed as a controversial uh, admission, at least in the context of this fairy tale thing, except for Billy Crudup, who's like, "Let's lean into it, woke Twitter, baby," which is a fascinating diagnosis of the politics online at this sure. moment. I, you know, the morning show. I wouldn't say that they really have their their arms around all the problems that they're trying to engage with, but they're trying. They're really they're trying. It is the the TV example of tweeting through it in real time. <laughs> and I commend everyone there. It's brave. Good luck. Episode five is a barn burner. I won't talk about it now. Maybe the second most important scene of television in 2019 after the bore on the floor scene from Succession. Wow. So we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for indulging me.
0: <laughs> You're so welcome. Um, let's keep it moving. In terms of things that you really love, Amanda, The Crown's coming back on Sunday. yes. And Olivia Coleman's in as the queen yes she's as a result has been doing a ton of press she is very chatty and this <laughs> I was watching YouTube just mm-hmm. you know catching up and I saw a video where all of these like celebrities in the UK covered songs for a BBC charity album and she covered a Portette song that um waller Bridge came with her sure. and It was just ador- it's just adorable I feel like Olivia Coleman's just been on a roll since the last year's the favorite and what are you? Is she a good queen? I haven't seen any of The Crown. I've
1: seen it, and I won't spoil too much. I think I love Olivia Coltman. That Oscar speech was so delightful. I think the press tour has been delightful. The only thing is that at some point you're in danger of the delightfulness of Olivia Coleman overshadowing the performance that she's giving sure. the Queen because Daffy Olivia Colman and the Queen. Pretty polar opposite, personality-wise. Yeah, yeah. And I did find myself, like, having to deprogram my brain a little, especially in the first episodes when she's kind of being a little—there is that expressionless face that the queen makes, you know, trying to signal remove and and authority and whatever, you know, internal stuff she's going through. But I found myself projecting a lot of, you know, weird flighty Olivia Coleman delightfulness on it. And it that makes for an interesting tension. Interesting. I got through it, but there there is something different than, say, when you started episode one of season one of the crown, and maybe you knew who Claire Foy was, but I don't really think anyone had a lot of strong associations with her. Right. And if you did, it was like, oh, she has played like Anne Boleyn or other old timey British period piece roles. So you're kind of—you're going on the journey versus there's obviously a ton of anticipation for season three of The Crown. There's obviously an Olivia Colman hive. The last thing we saw her in was either The Favorite or Fleabag season two. Right. So it, it's interesting. You're not only bringing your expectations of the first two seasons and of the Queen itself, but also Olivia Colman. And it takes a minute to settle, or at least I found it did. I can't believe it's been two years. It's pretty crazy. Well, they had to redo everything. And I know. It takes a lot of time and money. And I think they shot both seasons three and seasons four simultaneously. Right. So yeah, it it was really interesting as like a I thought a lot about how I watch TV as I was watching it because I think they do a pretty seamless job of introducing a brand new cast, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you can't help but notice it. Sure. You're just like, that's a totally new different person. Sure. So it's interesting. I'm curious to see how people respond to it. I obviously love it. I can I will also talk about that at great length. What a time for me! <laughs> I know between the morning for you. show and the Crown, two shows that no one but me cares about. That's not true. A the lot cr- of people do. Yeah, Crown's internationally popular, and Morning Show Hive is starting, and I I see all of you, and you're finding community. It's beautiful. It, thank you. I feel <laughs> that way.
0: Next uh, on the cover of December Vogue is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, aforementioned. I find that Phoebe Waller-Bridge fever is something I really didn't expect. And I think similar to Olivia Coleman, there's like this character that I think will overtake a lot of her work. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting to see it develop. And were you surprised that she landed the cover of Vogue?
1: Not entirely, but maybe at this particular time. Though in that way, it's interesting because I think kind of— magazine covers and promo and release dates are totally divorced now. Yeah. And people are just promoting themselves all the time. Sure. And then you hope that because the person is famous and likes that the audience will watch whatever thing, whether it's the fleabag play or, you know, Disney Plus or the right. Crown or whatever the hell is out there. So that makes sense. One thing is that Anna Winter is really loves theater. Sure. And, obviously, Fleabag started as theater, and I believe that she, Phoebe waller has been touring the United States, like, limited dates, but yeah. still doing the, the theater version of Fleabag. Next week, you can see it
0: uh, in the movie theater, so showing it for one night only. Oh, are they really? I think it's on the 17th. It's a Fathom Events event. I bought tickets about three months ago. I can't wait.
1: It's so smart. I like very idly a month ago was like, oh, maybe I can get some at the Geffen Playhouse in LA. <laughs> Lol, that's been sold out. It's like that's a five thousand dollar ticket. And I'm not. I don't have that kind of money. So, I think Phoebe Waller Bridge makes sense both for Vogue's taste and also because she's obviously like a very tall person who can wear yeah. clothes and is like intellectual. And I that thought fits.
0: I d- thought the photo shoot was interesting. It was so different than a lot of the ones they've mm-hmm. done with major stars recently, where it actually. It really seemed like they were showing off the clothes and the fashion and mm-hmm. the style and not not the person. Whereas like with Rihanna's recent shoot, it was so much more about like Rihanna and sort of there was more of like Rihanna's face. Where with Phoebe Waller Bridge, I felt like they made her seem like more statuesque in an interesting way. Yeah, and I thought that was that was just fascinating. And it's still I thought it was just an interesting like testament how to have the photos can still really make you read the story differently. Yes, particularly in in Vogue. So. I don't know. It was, it was an interesting profile. I also was interested that Lauren Collins wrote it. Has she written for Vogue before?
1: Not that I can recall. Maybe she's, a twice, she's a New Yorker writer. She's a New Yorker writer. In the fam. I, yes. From personal experience, I know that Condé Nast kind of loans some of its yeah. staff writers out from time to time. Though, it, I mean, that didn't used to happen. It was interesting to me. I, I thought she was great. Lauren Collins is based in Paris, and so I think getting to London is also a lot easier. Though they were in New York. Yeah, they were in New York. Huh. Walking through Central Park. And even— rowing one of the boats. Yeah. I got to say, as far as celebrity asks go, getting someone to row on a boat in Central Park is pretty difficult at this point. I was impressed. Phoebe Waller-Bridge really wanted this boat cover to commit to going rowing. I guess so. I don't know. And then The Guardian, The
0: Guardian did this whole thing. So there's like a playback book coming out, essentially, Mm -hmm. where they had different people interview, ask Phoebe Waller-Bridge questions and and then she answered them. So it was a wide range of like... Olivia Coleman, but then like politicians and writers and it's like basically the two most famous people in it are Maya Rudolph and Olivia Coleman, And Victoria Beckham, which was very strange. Victoria Beckham, comma, fashion designer. And it was kind of interesting the things that people want to know from Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's so much about process, I feel like, both in the Vogue profile and in this Guardian piece where they're asking her questions. And I think that I couldn't really remember the last— person whose process was actually interesting. And I I wouldn't say I find Phoebe, this, the process of that interesting with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, but it is, like, noteworthy because she's such, like, an interesting mind. Yes. But I feel like that's, like, a, a thing that novelists used to be asked a lot, but people don't really care anymore. And I just thought it was the fixation on how she does it with Phoebe Waller-Bridge I find fascinating.
1: Yes. I You used a word, inscrutable, which I think was spot on. She's clearly not giving away a lot of her yeah. process. I think— the secret is, and she seems very charming, and I think the Vogue profile is very charming, and I think all of the answers that are in this Guardian interview, which is, to me, I think probably in the newspaper, it looks a lot like a magazine front of book feature. It's very bitsy, yeah. you know, but it's, it's a lot of star power yeah. and not that much actual content. It's particularly bad uh, design on- online. Well, but I think she's very personable in all of these, but she is really not. Saying anything, yes, and so I, I think she really hasn't done a ton of press up until now. It's interesting that she's going on this tour. I think it's because she was doing all of the the Fleabag theater stuff, and I think she was working on she, she rewrote part of the Bond twenty five script, right? Directed by Carrie Fukunaga, starring uh, Daniel Craig. I really can't wait. I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm, I mean, it's it's really all of my interests. I love Bond movies, but so. I I think she has learned how to not give anything away. And one way to not give anything away, especially when you're an actor or a writer or director, is just to talk about the creative process. I'm sorry, it's always so boring. Yeah, it is. is. There is almost no one who can make, quote, craft sound interesting, even though what is produced is always, like, vital and fascinating. Totally. You know, but it's a good way of hiding behind... Hiding behind the work, which right. she has every right to do. I mean, some of it is also that I can't think of that many female writers or female writer producers. Greta Gerwig is another person, and she's starting on the press tour already for Little Women, which will be out in Christmas like a Day. month. Yeah. yeah. But there, we don't get that many female writer, director stars. It's true. Stars.
0: Her thing is that she uses Post-it notes because she thinks she'll lose a notebook or something like that. Right. Which, okay. That's mean, charming. Great. Yeah, it's like great. Okay, I think one thing that's a bummer though is it turns her that it turns her into more of a character than like an artist in some ways. Like I feel like she, she in very much in interviews plays Fleabag still and just sort of is like haha, like I'm I'm kind of a mess, but I've also got it together. I mean, obviously Fleabag does not have it together, but I feel like she relies on like a character more than like they can give me other answers, which is like you know totally. Like you said, like she hasn't done a ton of press, and she mm-hmm. almost like got so famous so quickly that it's in some ways maybe not surprising. But do you think that
1: undermines the achievement, or that people don't associate what she does as like actual work?
0: I think more of the latter. I don't okay. think it, I don't think it under. I mean, Fleabag yeah. is just such a crowning achievement; it's pretty amazing. But I don't know. I'm curious also to see like some of the other
1: stuff she's working on. Like she, I just like love her work. I want more of it. Right. It does kind of seem like she is wisely saving all the actual brain power yeah. for her work and all of the weirdness. Like you're not gonna go have an interview with Phoebe Waller Bridge and suddenly get episode four of yeah. season two of Fleabag. Like she definitely knows what is for what. Yeah, she seems savvy.
0: Yes. Also it's cool. She works with her sister and I have who's a composer and did the music for Fleabag and the season two music I fucking love. All the choral music. Yes. It's so great. So congrats to them.
1: I'm interested to see how much we see of her. I wonder if this is kind of a burst, and then she hides hides away. Yeah. It'll be
0: interesting to see. Okay. Next. On to wishing them well. <laughs> this week, on Monday night at the Clippers-Raptors game, Sean Mendes and his girlfriend, Camila Cabello, famous in her own right, you probably know both of them, were making out courtside at the Clippers-Raptors game. Okay. I do not support this, and I do not want to be involved. Just to both of them, like, cool, your music's fine. Sean Mendez, some of it I really like. Camille Cabello, really hard to transcend a girl group, so good job by you. No
1: interest, no thanks. See you later, but be well. Sue, so, can I just ask you as someone who follows the NBA? Sure. Making out at a Clippers game versus making out at a Lakers game in 2019. Give me the status. I, th- I think it's fine. The Clippers are, like,
0: the best team in the league, so it's, okay. it's, it's acceptable. Okay. It's also, like, probably, you know, Kawhi actually was playing against his old team. It's it's a respectable be-seen moment. Okay. I support it.
1: But it, it is very clearly just a, we are aware that we're sitting courtside and their yeah. camera's trained on us. I mean, it's the freaking Staples Center. Yeah. There's no accidents courtside at Staples. Right. I don't really have a lot of experience with them outside of extremely staged public displays of affection. Yes. Okay. That's their scene. Okay. They're both very attractive young people with great careers. I wish them well. Me too. Wish them well. Okay. <laughs> Farewell to them. Um, and lastly, some personal recommendations. Amanda, what do you have for me? So this is kind of a retread of a personal— it's an addition okay. to a personal recommendation that I gave a few months ago. But as you'll recall, I really loved the book she said by Jody Cantor and Megan Dewey who reported for the New York Times on the Harvey Weinstein— abuses, and then they wrote a great book about it, and they were recently on Gwyneth Paltrow's podcast. Oh, my God. They were on the Goop podcast, and I'm a fan of Gwyneth Paltrow. Is this a pro-Gwyneth Paltrow podcast? I'm neutral. Okay. We're open. Sure. Yeah, we're open-minded to the Gwyneth Paltrow podcast. But I certainly am a fan, and I obviously love this book. But what's so fascinating about it specifically is that Gwyneth Paltrow was a part of the Harvey Weinstein story, and she, was a, she worked with Jodi Cantor and Megan Chewy in putting these stories out. She wasn't in the first story, but her experience was in the second story, and she said kind of details more specifically how involved she was in the process— And it's really fascinating to listen to the two journalists talk to someone who is essentially an accuser in their story and definitely one of their sources like live on a mic and how each of those players sees the process. And it's Gwyneth talking about her experience, both as a famous person, and she talks a lot about her relationship to the media and what she was worried about and why she still wanted to do it. And it's interesting to hear them talk about trying to report with a famous person and and also the feelings about being a part of this very high-profile story and how none of them really understood how or knew how big it was going to be and what it's been like after the fact. It's, like, pretty—it's obvious— what's, what's Gwyneth Paltrow's, like, tone? She asks some questions. Like, what's the vibe? Yeah, so it's interesting. She does it with a, someone else who works at Google, Elise in, I believe— and it's at one point it's very clear they've set some ground rules where she is interviewing Jody Cantor and Megan Chewy, because Elise, her coworker, says, "I know they're not allowed to ask you questions, but can I ask mm. you questions?" And so I think when tone is, she wants to spotlight the book, and she talks a lot in the piece about how she only wanted to participate in a piece in the piece in a way that would amplify the voices of the other women, sure, who were. Uh, you know, harassed or assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. She didn't want it to become just another celebrity story. And and she is pretty aware and thoughtful about how the media usually works. And people—there is a tendency when something like this comes out to just, like, talk about Gwyneth Paltrow as opposed to talk to the, the other people—about the other people. So that is her approach to this interview. But they do manage to draw some stuff out of her anyway. Like what? Just kind of talking about her reluctance and like her distrust or her complicated feelings about working with Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey. And she was like, "Could I trust you? Because you know I have a very complicated relationship with journalists usually, and it's not normally a place I go to share secrets. And giving information away has historically been pretty tricky for me, right? And talking a lot about after the process, you know, there's a scene and she said at the very end where. A lot of the the sources in the New York Times stories gather at Gwyneth Paltrow's home, and she's talking about setting that up and how she felt very strongly that she wanted to do it. But she's also like, I also knew that it was on the record, yeah. which is really weird because there are a bunch of people in my house by my fireplace on the record, and that's something that I build my entire life to try to avoid. So— and she, and she also asks really good questions. At one point, she's just like explain how investigative journalism works to me, <laughs> which which is really smart. She yeah. is she's a good interviewer. So do you listen to her podcast regularly? I'm kind of on and off. She doesn't always do it. Mm-hmm. It's the other woman that I, who I mentioned hosts a lot. And I, with all respect to her, when, especially when it's like about sure. doctors and you know whatever health stuff they're doing, I don't. That's not for me. But. She interviewed her mother, for example, Gwyneth Paltrow, interviewed Life. Mike Danner, and that was really interesting. And her first interview was Oprah. I listened to that one. But this one, just because of everyone's involved in the same story, sure. it's a pretty fascinating document. I really recommend it. Okay. Cool. It's just called it The Goop Podcast? The Goop Podcast. It's the most recent episode. Great. Yeah. If you don't feel like reading She Said, this can be a pretty— this. <laughs> This is everyone
0: says she says she says amazing. Yeah. Seems like you should read it. Yes. So maybe listen to Goop afterwards. Yes. And also
1: an update because I think the last time we talked about it, we were like, I don't know who's has anyone optioned it? They should. Yes. Do you know who's optioned it? Who? Brad Pitt. Plan oh, B. Love it. You love to see it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Brad. I, hope, I hope they make a movie out of it. That's so wonderful. Um, all right. In the spirit
0: of Christmas, my recommendation, Casey Musgrave's Christmas album, went back and listen, re-listened to it. Mm-hmm. Just really delightful. I don't know. I feel like Casey Musgraves is like in contention for celebrity of the year. Certainly not winning, but she just had a really slow burn, no pun intended, for the last, for the <laughs> last year. And... uh I find it pretty interesting. I I just like I find her her whole thing fascinating. She's really good background music to me. I her she did a a cover of "I Want to Dance with Somebody" with Maggie Rogers, which I found to be an abomination. Okay, but I feel like that's the kind of thing you do as like internet bait. Like I'm going to bring out Maggie Rogers. We're going to do the most popular Whitney Houston song, Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't care for it. But I feel like if you go straight down the middle with Casey Musgraves, like right in her zone, yeah, it works well. And I'm looking forward to her Christmas special coming up.
1: Easy way to solve the problem you just mentioned. No covers. Don't do covers. I know. People just want to hear your songs. If they want to hear the original, they'll play it.
0: She's doing something unique right now, and it's like, just stick with that.
1: Yeah. Although,
0: yeah, she just go with it. She
1: seems to have achieved a level of fame and success that is like exactly proportionate. It's exactly what you want. She's not overexposed. Right. And but everyone, she has a devoted fan base. Universal approval rating. Pretty much do whatever she wants. And is really liked by everybody. She also
0: is really open about how she did psychedelics for her most recent album to yes. write a bunch of the song write yeah. a bunch of songs, which I think also like there aren't a lot of other like pop stars or country music stars or even rap stars who
1: are like talking about like drug use the way that she is, which is a real throwback. It goes with the whole vibe. Yeah. Can I ask you related to your Christmas sure. albums? Sure. And I didn't you didn't prep for this, so this is on the spot. Kay. Your top five Christmas albums. Go. Um
0: uh, this morning in the car, I listened to Chance and Jeremiah's uh, mixtape mix from two years ago, which wow. I, I really love. Okay. A SoundCloud classic. Casey Musgraves. Okay. Um, obviously, the um, Phil Spector Christmas. Yeah, number one for me, obviously. I think, like, the, vo- the sound of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> sure. It's yeah. just very Christmassy to me. And... um, the Indiana University acapella
1: group. I, I this Straight is Radio no Chaser asked because I knew there would be just a ridiculous. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I really recommend it. Love Straight No Chaser, okay. Indiana Christmas, a song in particular. Okay, just great. I lo- I love Christmas time. I do, too. I'm glad that it's Christmas on November 13th on Jam Session. Oh, this is my safe space. 100%. Great. It,
0: it was, like, foggy this morning. I was like, wow, weather. Here yeah, in it's Los no Angeles. longer <laughs> foggy,
1: but at least for 30 minutes. And we had a taste of fall We, sh- we of Christmas. sure did.
0: We sure did. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Check out Tea Time on Friday, and we'll be back next Wednesday.